1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. Order. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. So welcome to Rector's Cupboard. You two are giggling already. You're it's laughing. It's just one of those days. This uh, Allison is here. Yes, I am. And Amanda is here. I am. And this podcast is called Rector's Cupboard, which there there is a there's an episode that gives the history. You can go back yeah. and find that. King versus licorice. But it does have to do with a liquor cabinet. It does. <laughs> Like yes. with a cupboard. Not we why have, we're giggling. We regularly, no, no, no. No, we no, no we don't have True. that right to, this is not one of those episodes, but we regularly have tastings. We have a cupboard mm -hmm. master, Ken Bell, who does a fantastic job. So there's been some terrible news with this. Recently. There has been in Canada. Well, it's everywhere. I mean, it's also Well, well it's a Canadian States. guideline. It's a Canadian thing. So, but, but it's also now, I've seen American articles about it mm. in the United States as well. We apparently are finding out that drinking alcohol is much worse for us than we previously considered. So, isn't it I something like anything over two drinks a week is considered risky? Is considered dangerous, mm -hmm. and basically that alcohol now should be classified as like a carcinogen, cancer causing, and that maybe there should be labels on things. But certainly, if you have more than it, you, they used to say, particularly for men, like seven to ten drinks a week is okay so a glass of wine each night is fine maybe even healthy and now they're saying anything past two a week including that would be like two in one sitting or two in the entire week how big are they uh one and a half well, ounces like serving sizes it's depending on the alcohol like our tastings you know if sometimes we try a couple of different things. if it's like whiskey or something large drinks no, no, no. Yeah, but if it's whiskey or something, it's one it and a half. It depends on the volume of alcohol. If it's high high <laughs> alcohol, yeah, the, like 60% or whatever some are now, then it's even less than that. Or if wine is, what is wine, 8%? So, but some, mm, some No, are higher than that. I think so, it's like in like the teens. Yeah, that's right, 12. But some is, yeah, sorry. Wine is usually like low teens. But now it's apparently it's up to 17, 18. So then it's even less, right? Um, so I thought, like my question to you as we start, it's more to do with change. Do you think this is going to change people's habits a lot? I mean, there's lots of people who don't drink that much, but... I mean, we don't actually drink that much. I, like, I actually We have don't. our tastings, and that's kind of when I drink, I might actually. have a, um, a drink maybe a week. Yeah, if that... If I, probably that. Have, I probably have seven to ten right now, if I were to actually count. Like, if... Because there's lots of days that... There's a number of days that I don't drink, but... And then you'll then have a couple if drinks you have, if you're doing if you a social a thing. Beer, or, yeah, mm -hmm. if you have a beer. Yeah, yeah. And then, so, yeah, that wouldn't be outside the norm. I mean, I think it's certainly caught people's attention. When I was at lunch today, a couple of the people that I were with had beer. Yeah. And both of them actually remarked, like, oh, here's our drink. That's it. We're done right. for the week. So they've all seen this. Oh, absolutely. What it made me think of was, I mean, where, where we are situated in, in Metro Vancouver, there are a lot of like microbreweries and distilleries and mm -hmm. cideries. Like there's a ton. And in North Vancouver, particularly, like there's just areas that they're like neighborhoods now. Yeah. yeah. And so I yeah. wonder like if there'll be significant impact 
on yeah. those businesses. That's the question. Like we we have a interview today with um, Tim Decca, who's it was a pastor for years, like full time, and and been involved in a lot of other things, but works in a number of areas in terms of faith and church where there's a lot of change. Like this mm-hmm. used to be the norm, mm-hmm. and now mm-hmm. that's not. And now, and so when you think of this, particularly with drinking, I think back to like I've never sm- I've, I've tried smoking once when I was a kid, right? You know what I mean? But lots of people used to smoke. I've got a you guys know I've got a print in our house of a picture of Tour de France from like early 1900s or something. And it's guys are holding riders, it's all guys, are holding cigarettes for other riders and they're smoking. And the idea is it's just before they're about to climb one of the large like mountains. Yeah, my gosh. Because the advice at the time was doctors and others were saying, uh, smoking clears your lungs and helps you to breathe better <laughs> on these like really hard climbs. I mean, um, there, there's been so much kind of like flip flopping amongst many things that I try to take things with a little bit of a grain of salt. It doesn't surprise me that something that, I mean, literally you call it when, when you've had too much to drink, you're intoxicated. Like it's a toxic thing. There's that your a body, chemical reaction happening in your body. Yeah, and your yeah. body needs to, to process that toxin. I'm kind of like, you know what? That makes sense that that Traps. could be problematic. <laughs> the, and the question that's... I mean, when you me. think of change, like I can't help but think of like Mad Men right now, you know, just the, yeah. the whole office thing yeah. where people are smoking and drinking in the middle of the day and like... Yeah, yeah the, that the was just table the in the office. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, and like yeah. restaurants that, that would too. have like smoking areas, non-smoking areas. Or like, on airplanes. Planes. You're like, how is this So will separated? that change come about? Or will you have like... Um, I have 25-year-old and 23-year-old sons... Um, these kinds of things, they do listen to that. Oh, yeah. And, like, way more people used to smoke and don't anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, for... And will that happen with drinking? It could. It might. I, I mean, maybe on a positive level, it helps with some people who perhaps would drink in excess. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. Not, I'm not even thinking from, like, an addiction perspective, like an alcoholism or something, but just people yeah. who maybe they would be prone to going to a party and a just having I heard a guy much. on CBC Radio this morning talking about this, a medical professional of some kind, but who... Oh, he was a guy who had helped. He was a doctor who had helped because in the Yukon, so far north here in Canada, they actually had a trial because they had a lot of problems with alcoholism mm. and suicide and various things. Mm-hmm. That, so they had a trial where they put warning labels um, on bottles in liquor stores there, like the, it was a government and other agency thing. And he had been part of that and designing the warning labels and what should be on mm-hmm. them. And just like, I'm designing the language, I basically mean. And he was saying, like, it is interesting. He said, we have warning labels on cigarettes. We have warning labels on cannabis products. And he said, uh, he said, uh, alcohol is, t- and he, he, this is what he said, like I think he said 18 or 20 times more dangerous in terms of being a carcinogen and stuff than mm. cannabis is. He's mm. like, it's it's almost as bad as smoking. He's like, it's giving smoking a run for its money in terms of the kind of health problems that it can cause, but we don't have these labels, right? So it's interesting. Yeah. Thing. No, I um, wonder some of the cultural shifts. And I mean, I think that there will be people who just as with smoking, just as, like there will be people who push back um, who, you know, don't, don't wish to change or, you know, they, they don't see the, the need for it or, you know, my, my mother drank until she was 95 and she was healthy as a horse yeah. sort of a thing. Like, or smoked. Or smoked. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, you have those sorts of things. So I'm not sure. I, I also think that there can be an opportunity to go there. There's going to be people who, instead of producing, you know, amazing, really like well thought out and, um, you know, complex 
alcoholic drinks are going to find non-alcoholic alternatives for that. And I think that's great. Well, that's a burgeoning oh. industry yeah. now. They say there's like sure. whole, like these craft breweries yeah. and stuff. Yeah, because I mean, part all, of... Like the mocktail. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. part yeah. of like, I know the experience, you know, for me is sometimes it's nice to go out for a drink because it, it, it kind of like segments off a part of the day. You're separate That's from me. very much what it is. And so there's it's like an experience. Yeah. Like it's a, a social thing and mm-hmm. it's an experience. And I think that you don't have to have alcohol to do that. And it would be interesting to see the ways that there could be innovation and creativity to go, well, can we have some of these same things that traditionally are tied and to I alcohol. Think some distilleries have started to do that anyways, because yeah. there's things like dry, dry January, January and I've even seen a campaign for dry February and things like that. So well, like, I think be more. No, yeah. I think right? it also provides so an opportunity for people maybe who, who don't wish to consume alcohol to have better selection if they go out mm-hmm. with their friends. That's true. So last question in terms of our own, what we're doing um, and it's, it honestly, it's just more of a question, but I think it'll, I think it'll impact me knowing that this knowledge is out there now and that we know this and we didn't before for many people. Um, it could potentially change even how we talk about alcohol and how we do things oh, like tastings so. sure. and how we like, you know, we love cupboard master Ken and we want him around and we want, but the kind of, the kind of joking atmosphere that can come around alcohol right they come. will the language change will the doesn't mean that's like that's still a social experience and still kind of like a, but knowing that oh this is actually more harmful than we thought um that you probably have that in your mind as you're as you're talking to people and as you're thinking like yeah. particularly if if somebody has an issue with too much drinking or whatever right then it's so yeah i mean when you're getting into addiction mm-hmm. that's a different conversation mm-hmm. altogether um i mean for me personally i don't know that it's going to impact any habits? Largely, no. Um, because, like, like I said, I don't really yeah. drink very much. Yeah, you're not one of the people that has a glass of wine every night. No. no. Yeah, there's a lot of people that do, and then that can sometimes more. Well, there is a very thick a layer over some yeah. bottles of alcohol in, our <laughs> in my yeah. Uh, yeah. The, So, uh, as we transition then to the interview, it would be like, what what things need warning labels? And this might offend some people listening, but you know, we're okay with that. Um, <laughs> I what are the what are the that. ways in which some churches would need warning labels? And some Absolutely. people some people would answer that no, you're you know no, they're just helpful, they're just wonderful, and that is a possibility and that's real. Um, but there probably would be also some people who'd be like, yeah, there's things in my mm-hmm. life that should have had warning labels. I wish I had known that this could cause damage. Oh no, yeah, kidding. no, and I think that I think one of the things that I've become aware of is that uh i think we shouldn't be having a universal like like a presumption that just because we've experienced something positively doesn't mean it doesn't mean that everybody has and that doesn't invalidate my experience and it doesn't invalidate their Mm -hmm. experience i think that people are are easily polarized that it's either all good or all bad and because i've experienced it as positive like i think that we can have an opportunity for some more nuanced conversations with that and and so i'm i'm grateful for the ways in which um there have been things that have always been a facade with the church that are now no longer right. hidden. It's and an exposure. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm I'm grateful for that. Well, even even our guest Tim uh, talks about and in our interview shares mm-hmm. that, and he had great experience working in church, having the, but um, it came with a cost, which mm-hmm. is which is to some mm-hmm. degree why he's not doing that anymore. Yeah. He's doing it differently. Mm-hmm. There's change. No, and, and I, so I think that good. there's there's good opportunities to have conversations about what does it mean to be a Christian community now and how can we practice in ways that are 
healthy for congregations, healthy for ministers. I mean, anyone who is involved in church work understands like burnout level with pastors at the moment. And I think Mm -hmm. congregations are also the same. And so you just have these like communities of people who are just in survival mode and struggling to keep their heads above water. And I'm like, maybe we could reimagine some stuff. And I think it's largely positive. I think so. I mean, it, like, I think you, you'll be able to hear it in Tim's voice as he's talking about, <laughs> and he's so excited about. Because well, you work so with Tim as well. I, think I do, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Tim's new thing, uh, um, even though he's left um, the church that he was pastor at, he's at CityGate, um, which is a great organization. He's really involved in social, in social and justice yeah. and yeah. finding systemic inequality within the city, and he's really focused on things like mental health yeah. and affordable housing and shared living and community. Because of his faith perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. He didn't walk away from faith no. and, or you know, well, and or the church. No. He loves both yeah. of those yeah. things. And I think it's very evident in the conversation that we have. No, Tim um, is Tim is somebody who I'm kind of like, oh, as somebody who can admittedly struggle with the institutional church. I go, oh, I'm so glad that people like Sim- Tim exist. You give me like yeah, hope for right? this. Um, yeah. and, and like as a warning, like I, I did try to do a little bit of editing, but Tim will get increasingly louder throughout the interview <laughs> as he gets oh, really? more animated. There wasn't a whole lot <laughs> I could do. We got, so he's into I it. He's either into yes, it or so I watched excited. this steady increase in volume. Well, thank you very much. Enjoy. Uh, enjoy. Those enjoy. who are listening, enjoy the interview and cheers. <laughs> Ding. Cheers. <laughs> Well, we're pleased for our first episode of 2023. That's how you're supposed to say it. You that don't say, slowly? Yeah, you know, you don't say 2023. You say 2023. I think I reject that. News reports and I think stuff, we're so. diverging from what's For the first episode here. of 2023 to be joined uh, by Tim Dickow, who's become a friend of ours. Um, and we have many common kind of uh, work friendships and such. Uh, Tim pastored at Grandview Church in Vancouver for 30 years and now teaches through the Center for Missional Leadership at St. Andrew's Hall in Vancouver, connected to Vancouver School of Theology. Tim also directs CityGate, an organization connecting the church with the City for Transformation. And I'm reading that from a fairly recent book of Tim's called Forming Christian Communities in a Secular Age, Recovering Humility and Hope, um, which are two words that sound great. And so, Tim, thank you so much for joining us for this first episode of <laughs> yes, 2023. Welcome, it's good to be here. Um, thank you so much. I mean, I'd also feel remiss to say like we've actually had, um, or if I didn't say that we have actually had a chance to have a little bit of a conversation with you, uh, when we did a special series with David Goa and that was kind of my first, I think, actual real interaction with you in person. And it was great. I I just re-listened to that. We could link it here. You can hear lots of Tim's conversations with us, apparently. (laughs) Um, So thank you so much for being here. And and I'm really glad to be having uh, this conversation. Um, I'd like to start a little bit with your story. I mean, on, on Rector's Cupboard, we believe that stories are important and they connect with people. And it's how we kind of understand ourselves and our world and stuff. And uh, you were a pastor for many, many years. Um, 30. <laughs> and uh, I'd love to start with, if you could tell us how how that journey started for you. Like, how how did you get to be a pastor? How did you feel called towards that? Mm-hmm. Well, it really started uh, right post high school. I went to a Christian college for a year and worked as an assistant to a pastor who had a vision for the whole kingdom of God, and he was a thinker, and uh, that attracted mm. me. 
And uh, so I actually served as an interim pastor of that church. In the meantime, I was going through a lot of doubts. I started out in business at university, switched over religious studies. My New Testament professor was an agnostic at best and took delight in deconstructing <laughs> Christian students. So I was well deconstructed. Where was this? University of Calgary. Okay. And so I was well deconstructed by the time I finished. And so I came to Regent College with the idea that I'm either going to make sense of this or I'm going to... Um, let it go. And uh, after a year, I was, I was there a year, and Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, his book name, came to teach a course on the Synoptic Gospels, and that really made a heck of a lot of sense to me. And uh, um, so I came with that vision that Tom supposes of the New Testament of Jesus incarnated in first century Palestine, working out what it meant to to be uh, the presence of God in that time and, and place, and then taking that vision to Grandview when I came there of of being present, uh, forming a community that would be present as the as God's uh, the presence of Christ in that neighborhood. And so I came with that, had no idea how to work it out. Really, I wasn't really <laughs> taught that in in seminary how to do that in a secular post-Christian age, and so I had to kind of figure that out on the go with the people that became a part of the church. Did, did you feel that um, that was a particular or maybe a little, little bit unique? Like you're looking at other churches at that time, entering into the life of a full-time minister or pastor or whatever. Did you see your call as like, I want to do something slightly different than many of the things I see? Or Well, I could see that most attractional churches were based on a Christendom model. And I could I didn't see that as transformational or touching life in the way that I saw the gospel touching life, and so I thought there's this is going to be different than what most churches look like. Um, but I didn't know what it could look like. Hmm. And and so as you're you're talking about these these differences that you're seeing as you you understand you're going to operate differently so when when you started at Grandview how like what were some of the things that you did to actually um I don't know bring bring that concept to life like how did you take what was kind of in your imagination in in kind of like your theological understanding Mm. and and put it into place of your church like how how did you actually like like, articulate right yeah How did that end up working out? Right. Well, there are a few key things. One is that the church and the denomination gave me six months to go around the neighborhood and say, my name's Tim, I'm with this church, what's going on here? How could a church be involved? And that was, looking back, just such a gift because I got to know so many people in the neighborhood. Um, I realized that nobody had a clue that our church existed. Uh, Already there was great suspicion of the church and Mm -hmm. the you know, in 1990. Um, and so I was beginning to realize, oh, this is going to be different. You know, we just, even if we have a quote, good church, people are not going to come. No. Right. Yeah. And so like, yeah. this is going to be different. We're going to have to form a community of people that actually inhabit this place hmm. in order to be a presence for Christ here and to engage people in a way that is, is makes them curious about what's going on. So. Yeah. So you you did that through. I mean, I know from like, I I would hear you. I, I knew of you before I met you, or and largely that was like 
being a pastor myself, you hear like, oh, Grandview's doing some really cool things. Mm. And then literally I'd be listening like CBC radio and I'd hear you on there, mm. right? Speaking about a housing development or something. So what are some of those particular things you did in the neighborhood or supported in the neighborhood? Yeah. Well, initially we did things like we we had a tutor. We got students, we got ahead a connection from uh, Prince of Wales High School where the the teenagers came and tutored kids after school in our that in mm-hmm. our elementary schools because uh, it was still a pretty poor uh, place at that point and uh, so it was helpful to kids we we started a parents group because there was very little for parents in the neighborhood at the time and our son was six months old when we came there and uh, I was meeting with the woman in the park that I'd get to, gotten to know and her son she had a son our age, and she says, you know, there's nothing for parents. I said, oh, we should do something in our church hall. You know, our church was the only the only spot of our church building that was in any good shape. The, the, yeah, all it's the an little, old building. Yeah. Little rooms were trashed and <laughs> yeah. had garbage in them, and we, I was the construction manager for the first year. Oh, dear, that must year. have been distressing. Year. Anyways, we started this parents group, and, and that just, we lived in the neighborhood, and that started to get us connected with other families in the neighborhood, and... Uh, one of the stories I like to tell is the the story of trick or treating on Halloween after we'd been there two years, and we went through the neighborhood and informally ended up meeting these other parents that were there, and and uh, we all went to Britannia Community Center for this event that they were having, with, and uh, the director of Britannia, Doug Sue, was there, and I had he's one of the people I'd gotten to know in my first few years, and he calls me over and says, Tim, who's those people you're with? I said, oh, it's part of a parents group we started at the church. And he says, well, look around. There's 300 people here, and you're like the only group that's together. And there's like 30 of us with kids. And he says, you're doing something really good there. you got to keep mm. at that. And so he was seeing things that even we were having a hard time right. seeing yeah. at that point. And so we started to, to form community. It became quite diverse ethnically and culturally. Still a lot of um, refugees and immigrants coming into that neighborhood. And so we... we started to form, reform new community. It really from, and, and such a diverse community. At one point we had people born in 34 different countries that were part wow. of this 200 people church, you know, and so yeah, the was, church was never a huge church, right? No, 300 max when we, yeah. when I finished. And so it's, it grew slowly and, and, uh, 300 big for yeah. around here. It's, if you, you go back to the NT right stuff and talk about that kind of, um, Im- imagination, the call of like, incarnation that kind of what that sounds slightly different than you know many church models and some some baptist churches where where these programs are all kind of intended towards you know conversion how how do you react to that kind of thinking yeah well again i think one of the 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 things at grandview that i look back on with some satisfaction is that we tried to hold together what gets torn apart in the vision of the gospel I think there is a personal call to transformation in Jesus' words mm-hmm. and vision. Mm-hmm. That's held within a vision for the transformation of all of culture and the world and God's intention to restore all things through Christ and by the work of the Spirit. And so that that we were wanting to be a sign and foretaste of that kind of vision. And so it was about developing a different way of being human that we were working at. And then... In that journey, we would invite people of to take up that call with us to live into that way yeah. of being human. But yeah. it's more of a trust than kind of a, 
it, it, it's not doesn't ha- seem to have the haste or the yeah. yeah most most of the people that became followers of Christ lived in our community houses or participated long term in one of the initiatives right. that we started because it was about they could see the Seems. way of life we were yeah. pursuing and that made some sense no no I think that that's that's really really interesting I mean I'm, I feel like I'm picking up that that so much of of the work that you're doing and and the intention and the ethos of of that work is very much based on relationships mm-hmm. um and so you, you speak of going around and just introducing yourself around the community for six months and getting to know people and and not having this kind of hastiness. And you talk about these ways that you form community based on relationship. And that's that's a very different kind of approach and model to to both church community than than I've seen presented, particularly in most churches, um, as well as kind of um, pointing towards like, what what evangelism can kind of look like because I, I grew up with a concept of evangelism uh that mostly was born out of a lot of urgency and a lot of fear and a lot of this has to yeah, happen emphasis this on like now. personal salvation where yeah. this is a larger and, right. and that doesn't seem like what you're talking about like it seems like you're you're pointing towards something that that isn't like i always felt like there was almost this like bait and switch that i was yeah. needing to do or that was I, I didn't do and then I felt bad that I didn't do that because that's what I was supposed to do but I feel like your your understanding of what community and evangelism means doesn't have kind of some of that like I mean for lack of a better term like coercion yeah well I think there's two issues you're naming there what is the theological vision mm-hmm. of the good news and you know I, I don't think it is about you know saving people from an eternal damnation. Yeah. That's not what evangelism is. Evangelism is about proclaiming and living out this good news that God is making things new through Christ and by the Spirit. So if one of the th- ways that I've said that, if churches aren't good news in how they live, yeah. then their message is incoherent or incongruent. And uh, so how does the, one of the questions I had is, how can we become a community that is good news? For our neighborhood. That's so great. And uh, so that was what we were pursuing. What is it? How can we be formed in ways that enable us to love our neighbors effectively, not as persons, as a, you know, and care about the whole place we're in sort of thing? That was the vision we were pursuing. So I can hear in that a hopeful, kind of invigorating, life-giving call, you know, that gives you energy even hearing that. The other side of it, as I think about it, the actual programmatic, the administration, the, uh, the and then particularly people's needs. You're dealing with people, working with, I shouldn't say dealing with, working with, living with people who have a tremendous amount of need. Or it, I'm thinking now of, it, you must have come up against like, there's no end to the work. Absolutely. What then? Yeah, so, but there again... This is where, like, our modernist mindset of we can fix things if we have the right technology and the right approach is different from how do we form a life yeah. as human beings that bears witness to the persisting love and justice of God in the world. That is, it's not about we're going to accomplish it right. ourselves. Right. We're going to bear witness to it. Ultimately, it's a trust right. in God to bring about mm-hmm. the renewed creation. And so there's there's that need. Now, having said that, 
um, I burnt out at I was going to say, how yeah. do you sustain yeah. yeah, the balance of that, how you sustain That's that. That's really interesting yeah, t- to me because I feel that, you know, the compelling nature of what you're talking about, that we don't have to achieve it. We don't have to fix everything. We don't. And again, that's life-giving. But then the, the reality is you still face this. So you're saying you there was burnout for you. Yeah, I that. mean, and again, you know, that's how we're all a little, we're, our brokenness impacts our life. And I mean, I think I wasn't good at Sabbath. Um, I had two sabbaticals and they both got interrupted or, or sidelined mm. for different reasons. Um, and I wasn't good at, at rest. Um, one of the gifts that I had is I lived in the neighborhood. I mm. worked in the neighborhood. I knew everybody. I walked out my door. I was a pastor. Exactly. That was the gift. The downside is I walked out my door and I was a yeah, pastor. Yeah, always on. And, uh, Everybody's telling you their stuff. And yeah, everybody, yeah. yeah. And, and you don't begrudge it, yeah. but it does have it. The other thing is, like, one of my gifts was helping make things work and helping bring things mm. to life. You know, my parents were entrepreneurial farmers, and I took that kind mm. of of approach to pastoring, like, how can we bring life out of these places and people here? And uh, I was, I, you know, I think that was one of my gifts, and I was good at troubleshooting. I was good at making things work. And the, but the bad thing, I was good at making things work. And so, you know, so the pretty, temptation yeah, you're the person is, who does that then. Yeah, yeah, it's the temptation to do that. So, I mean, those are some learnings, and, you know, I, I wish I'd have learned some of those things before I burnt out, but, you know. How did you know you, how did you know about burnout? Did well, I mean, it was exposed when I had an accident after a night when I had I'd been drinking. And, uh, there oh, so you were even talking about incident at this point. Yeah, January 19th, 2019, I had an accident. And then the, I, I wasn't charged with things, but I could have been. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, I ended up. Um, having a year off for so recovery. So do you, do you think about that now as almost like a self-medicating thing? Like a... Yeah, I was distracting myself. Mm-hmm. I, instead of taking rest, yeah. I was distracting myself. And uh, I think our, you know, I think in retrospect, a lot of our community were burnt out. Mm-hmm. And uh, so our, our way of life lacked something around Sabbath. I mean, we identified that a few years earlier, but I don't think we really... Got down to how the crux. Do f- how do you feel about that now? Do you look back at that now, and see kind of the gift of that as well as the? Well, I I see the gift for myself mm-hmm. in the sense of, uh, um, for one thing, it released me from. I see a lot of pastors who kind of just drift into retirement and never have to deal with a shift in their work and <sighs> they their identity is so wrapped up in being a pastor that they can't you know, function well outside mm. of that. And so I feel like it's been a gift for me. I mean, I'm still pastoral, but I'm mm-hmm. not a pastor as a, that's not my kind of identity. Right. And so I, I I think there was a gift in me for that for later in life and, you know, living into the second half of my life. Um, so yes, I, I, it's harder to see the gift for the community. Uh, and I, I mm-hmm. you know, still. I feel still feel bad. Do you, I'm, now I'm just going on pastor questions. Sorry to keep, because <laughs> I think there might be people listening who would identify with this. Like, if you're talking about that burnout and then if there's an incident like that, that right? Um, one of the words that comes into my mind is like, even when you're a people person and you walk out your door and you're, um, there's a loneliness that is there. Did, did you, were you able to identify that or were you? In retrospect, mm-hmm. not at the time. I mean, I, I, I pastored with an element of friendship. And so I had a lot of, quote, friends. Yeah. But 
I don't, looking back, I don't think I was going deep enough Mm -hmm. in those friendships. Or I was so concerned with the community as a whole that I wasn't as concerned about the friendships that I was nurturing personally. Close, key. Yeah. 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 Yeah, And and we lost, we had, we lost some of our close friends. Two of them, older people died. Um, Howard and Shirley Bentall early on were just such key people in our lives and in our church. And then Charles and Rita Ringma, Charles taught at Regent, and Charles and Rita had gone this road before us, and they were such key people, and they moved back to Australia, and we never quite replaced them. Yep. Hmm. Um, and and so that we recognize now there was kind of a lack there. Mm-hmm. So so I'm curious as you know as somebody who is clearly well-informed and and interested in Christian communities operating but isn't pastoring one right now like what sort of lessons or or practices and stuff can can churches and communities implement so that this doesn't happen because there's there's part where I go I am grateful that that you were able to 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 exit from that so you could get the rest and and the stuff that you need um but it's not like you're you're calling for all churches to close because pastors can't deal with um like it, it's too much weight on them and so therefore they shouldn't exist like you're calling for christian communities but there there's a different way of of framing that like what what sort of things can be or do you think like lessons that that you've learned at quite a price um for Christian communities so that they can they can live in a way that their pastors are not feeling like their souls are being yeah, sucked a, out a of few them. Th- a few things. I mean, my situation is different, I think, than a lot of pastors. I think I see a lot of pastors burning out because they feel like all their work is to keep the ship alive. Yeah. And mm-hmm. they long for a different kind of thing, and they feel like they can never get there. That was not my experience. My, I mean, I felt like we were keep kept inching towards the kind of community that I'd hoped we'd become, and so I, my burnout was not associated with that. My burnout was more associated with a little bit of you know workaholism. I often said I didn't mm. work always work that hard. I just worked a lot, <laughs> you know, and so I was always on work. But even in when I I wasn't necessarily working hard all the time, but I was working Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so uh, for me it was I needed geographic separation and my counselor when Uh, suggested that the the longer I pastored the longer my geographic breaks needed to be and I wasn't hmm. like away from the actual place yeah Yeah, because I wonder about some of the the expectations of of communities of of their leadership of their pastors um and where some of those are really helpful and where some of those are really um can be really damaging thinking about, um, you know, you want to be in your community, but you speak of how then there aren't times where you get to actually clock out. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you could run into anybody at any point. And the assumption, I think, from a lot of congregation members is that if you meet your pastor, there's still a pastor at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think that there needs to be kind of a shift from, from congregations of what is actually realistic to expect their pastors to do for them? Or... Are there, yeah, I'm think, trying to think I, I how think, to do that. I think just more important as I look back is just nurturing friendships where 
you make an agreement with somebody that when you're with them, you're not the pastor. Mm. Like, like it's, you're very explicit <laughs> about that. And to say, you know, you, they even may be part of your church, but they have the maturity to be in that kind of relationship with you. And uh, I had some of those for a while, and then I uh, started to lack. Mm. Yeah, so those supports that yep. you put in place that you'd already recognized were important started yep. to kind of deteriorate. Yep. And yeah, so you go, okay, so when that doesn't happen, I see... I see how you get from, from that to, yeah, a, a, a not good place. Yep. What do you, you had, so I'm thinking now from a you know, personal lens of being a pastor here on the North Shore, Grandview is not far away, but it's across the bridge, which is like another world to some. Might as well people. be, yeah. And then knowing, kind of coming, the church I was at coming out of Plymouth Brethren tradition, very conservative, very much kind of like personal salvation stuff and have... And being a pastor at the time, who was like, I have a different, you know, I'm, I have a different vision of what, and, and so not knowing yet, I knew, like, oh, Grandview, and I would hear things like I said, and be like, they're, they're offering a, a more hopeful picture, like the kind of ways you describe it. But currently, now we're, you know, 2023, um, what do you, what do you think of the current kind of church context and some of the ministers, churches, church boards, organizations like, you know, St. Andrew's Hall, uh, the questions they're asking in terms of what it means to be a church in the world right now, you, some of your teaching and stuff interacts with that. So tell yep. us about that. Yep. Well, the line that I've used is that COVID has exposed and accelerated the demise of Christendom models of church. And and by that, I mean that um, um, it's, I think people are even less likely to quote, go to church out of a kind of a habit mm-hmm. yeah, or people, we always say people who go to church don't even go to church anymore. right yeah. right <laughs> and so i think that that has raised all sorts of questions about what it means to be the church and uh, so i don't think i think one of the gifts we had at grandview was that 70 percent of the community at, at one point lived in the neighborhood walking distance mm-hmm. to the church building and we inhabit a neighborhood, and we had a shared life together. That, and there were pockets of where people were very intentional about moving into three or four pockets where there were maybe, you know, 15, 20 people lived on a block, and we're developing a common life together. Mm-hmm. And when we gathered for worship, it was a sharing of our experience of being the church during the week. And, mm-hmm. um, and so it wasn't, you know, just a two-hour program <laughs> It was a sharing of our mm-hmm. lives together, and we'd have lunch together and so forth. And so there was there was a sense of, like, we're gathering in order to be right. to but, reformed. But the, faith, the faith has lived out right. outside yeah. of this context. Right, yeah. right. It's and not about dragging everybody to the... Right. Yeah. And I, I think there, there was a goodness in that because there's, you know, it had a lot to do with kind of new monastic kind of conversations, mm-hmm. these small communities of people. And what I what I find there is that they're often isolated from any sort of larger group vision, and so they often are vulnerable in that way. You know, a few pe- one or two people shift their vision and they leave, and the group ends, or it's vulnerable. We would have community houses where people live together. One or two people would move out, and because this was kind of the culture of the community, other people would move in, yeah. and we were able to sustain this for a long time. This. Um, being the church in and for the neighborhood. Like that's a, that was a, the kind of vision that we were fostering. And so the initiatives that we developed, everything from, you know, <clears throat> community housing 
housing project over our parking lot, Ken Brace, uh, housing and support mm-hmm. for refugee claimants, or um, Just Work, which forms social enterprises to employ people with barriers. All of these things were forming out of our life in the neighborhood yeah. with people as we got to know people and realized, oh, these people are in this situation or these situation. And then as brought people together with common vision and started to work at these things and slowly develop these initiatives to care for our neighbors. So in that way, it kind of was ahead of it. Like when you say now that COVID has accelerated some of this stuff, that the the decline of Christendom, you're not lamenting that. No, I think that that was on its way. And it's it's kind of been a wake-up call of what does it mean to form people in in to be formed in as a group in a way that leads us to engage our neighborhood and neighbors more deeply and to yeah. touch on the systemic yeah. issues that are you know affecting our culture. So, so there's ways in which the Christendom model the decline of that actually helps those possibilities. It does. It, yeah. it, it raises the fact that just having a good worship service is not going to be yeah. the thing that that changes your community no yeah no i i find that very interesting and it's um i'm interested if you don't mind if we uh when when you use the term secular here uh for for somebody who you know grew up in a church context a reasonably conservative church context that word was used in a quite a polarizing way Right. as a way to like delineate we're, we're us and them and yep. what is of God, what is not of God. Um, I, I don't get the sense that that's actually what you're referring no. to when you use that word. So there's part where like I'm reading that and I'm like, okay, I, like I'd love if you could tell us when you talk about forming Christian communities in a secular age, if it's not about like this remnant of you're forming something in opposition to the world, when you use the word secular what does that mean to you? Like, what are, what are you trying to, to kind of, like, define and delineate there? Yep. Well, really, if in the book, I articulate very briefly the 800 pages of Charles Taylor. <laughs> um, <laughs> that book to, is so big. Yeah. Um, I did a response to a Stanley Harawas um, lecture, and I was talking with Stanley afterward about the book, and he says, it would have been a great book, been 400 yeah. pages. <laughs> Um, said Stanley <laughs> yeah. I was going to say yes. Yeah, but, but it is a great book. I mean, it's yeah. an amazing book. And it, it really, I kept reading it and thinking, oh, that's what's going on in the people I talk to. Oh, that's, mm. that's what's going on in me. Like, you know, so it's, it's very much, he describes, you know, Taylor describes how he went from a time in 1580 yeah. in the West when most people believed in God. They weren't necessarily devout to a time when many people don't believe in God. And we all struggle at times to believe. And we struggle to believe that God is active in the world. Mm-hmm. And then he explains some of the conditions that have changed. Um, that made so much sense to me. And then in the book, I try to describe some of the other powers connected with that, mm-hmm. like autonomy and individualism and consumerism mm-hmm. and just the bland acceptance of inequality that contribute mm-hmm. towards this sense that, you know, God's not the primary agent in the world. We are, and we're we're not really that interested in mm-hmm. in God's agency. Yeah. So what I what I sense you're you're getting at is it's more of not not a way to be in opposition to the world, but as as a way for people to understand kind of the water we're currently swimming in as 
Yeah. Like Correct. as a society. So it's, it's not a way that you need to like segregate from yep. the secular. It's saying in what ways are, are you still dealing with these default assumptions that come with living at this moment in history? Yeah, that we're we're all impacted by the age we live in. That's part of what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to describe the age we live in and then say we're all a part of this. Now, what does it mean to be the church in these particular conditions? Mm-hmm. And that's why some of the implications are we need to be serious, more intentional about our own formation in mm-hmm. Christ and the practices that we take up that will form us. And this is where I think there's naivety amongst a lot of new monastic groups to thinking that, you know, if we just get together and we have a good vision, we can work it out. Like, that, that mm. is naive about the ways that we're all impacted by mm. these powers that misshape human life. And that it's going to be a bit of a struggle to, to be formed in ways that we are salt and light in the world. I like how you explain briefly uh, Taylor's, like, I, I like Taylor's book as well. Um, and his, I think the other word I'm remembering is construal, right? He uses <laughs> yes. all these terms. Yes. And that uh, in 15, you know, 1500, the way people construed things, they had a vision of things that they explained Everything. Most most people explain most things by God. So right. the weather, God, the right. thing, God. Right. Right. And that what happened in that 500-year span where most of us, even if we're people of faith, right, that have Christian faith or whatever we'd say, that that um, the construals are not that anymore, that it is this other thing. That, But as you say that, I'm thinking of the work that you have done, The whether it's a, you know housing or the ways you reach into a community. In your book, you talk about things like prayer. Like how, and I just see this really hopeful, and I, and I, I see this as a, as a pastor, right? And you see more and more people coming to church who haven't been to church for years or decades or whatever. Yep. And they're like, the way you talk about things is different. I'm interested in that. And you're able to speak with people about things like prayer. People whose construal of the world is not God anymore, yep. but there seems to be this longing for prayer, or they would say something like prayer. How do you, like, wh- what's hopeful about that to you? Well, again, I think, you know, we're all created in a way that for infinite desire. And so that's part of being human and part of coming from God is that our desires are infinite and that we only actually can value finite goods by this infinite framework that we have. And so everybody is longing for something greater than we have whether it's, you know, a, a world that is going to be sustained because we're addressing climate change or because mm-hmm. we're addressing poverty or because, you know, my brokenness, people still accept me. Like, there, yeah. we're all, we have this infinite desire that, that, that everybody experiences. And so when you say things like prayer or that connects to this longing for what is infinite, the good, the true, and the beautiful, then we you can't people can't help but feel it it's what taylor calls cross pressures like even very atheistic materialist people feel the yeah. pressures of oh yeah but there's got to be more yeah. mm. <laughs> you know so there's it, it tapping into that i think is part of the the way of being the church that we 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 don't get stuck in just um, while we worked for real practical yeah. change on the ground, we recognize this is just touching the, the edge of the great hope that mm. we all live for. It's a different approach, right? Like when you talk about prayer like that, 
if you grew up, I'm thinking Allison of your background. <laughs> stuff, you grew up, you would have grown up in a place where it's like, you better be reading the Bible and you better be praying. Like this oh, is yeah. a, you know, you use the word coercion and whatever. It's, it's not that right. It's, it is, it's more invitational yeah. Yeah, right? Right. that there is this. And then and you find people, cause yeah. if you do approach with coercion in this day and age, right. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't be interested in that. No. You know, what's wrong with the world? What's you, you know, people don't pray anymore. You know what yep. I mean? Yep. Whereas if it's like, connecting with that sense of desire yep that you 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 do find people who are like i don't i don't even really believe this but i find myself doing this compelled towards it yeah (laughs) Yeah. for for me i'm hearing i'm hearing echoes and and i think in our conversation that we had with with david um last year or whatever that was um you you'd referenced uh alexander uh book like for the life of the world and and i hear echoes of how i'm assuming some of what he he talks about in there informs how how you're choosing to operate and he talks about how like that it's not for like this isolationist protectionist like we need to keep this institution going but he's like no the purpose of the church is for the life of the world right um and it's it's very i i find it beautiful and i find it interesting um and i i think i i wonder how that interacts with the things that I, I know are like obligations of an institution <laughs> and how those might kind of not That's always awesome. work well together. Um, I mean, as, as we've gotten this, this little thing going, I, I feel like I've gotten a lot more informed about what some of like the legal obligations of a charity are and a nonprofit and those sorts of things. And so I wonder how, hmm. how you can do some of those institutional things um, that, that would be good things like, um, like running and, and, um, providing like worship services and those sorts of things and how, how you do that within these very communal aspects of finding out what your neighbors need, um, which isn't a worship service necessarily. And how do those things kind of play or compete and, and how could we maybe have like a good and healthy relationship between those, those elements? Um, that's a good question. Well, I try and distinguish between institutional elements and institutional and and trying to help the institution survive <laughs> like that orientation mm-hmm. because like when you think of institutional elements oftentimes institutions in their healthiest are a way of preserving good and so when we when we develop an institution around um, social assistance in our culture, it's a way of preserving the good that everybody merits and deserves to have a livable income. People who are in that system for a long time experience all the downsides, (laughs) the institutionalistic Mm -hmm. elements of that, of Mm -hmm. trying to get this or that when you're on social assistance. It's a nightmare. And if you've ever advocated for people, you you know that it's so difficult in that bureaucratic system. Yeah. But the the institution was developed and to to preserve good. And so if we think of institutions like that, is is they're preserving the good from the gains that we've had from the past. The challenge is not to let those um, preserving the goods drive our vision into the future because the institution will need to change right. to deal with new issues mm-hmm. and not just to preserve the goods of the past. Um, so that's kind of a theoretical thing. How that works out, I think, is that 
I think we need to, for one thing, theological vision needs to drive the church, not pragmatism. I Thank think you. in North America, <laughs> pragmatism drives yeah. the church, and not theological vision. So by that you mean like the institution kind of exists for itself? Too. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, to propel itself yeah. and to grow, quote, yeah. bigger. Um, and so that becomes the focus. Rather than how do we form a people that bear witness to the fullness of God's vision for society? Like that's a different kind of and humanity so that allows you then though to hold the institution lightly like to value it to yep. realize it as a preservation of good and the ans- asking of these new questions but also the realization that institutions grow change Shift. die, yep. reform <laughs> yes yes so you, your vocation then is not to make sure this institution correct st- it, it is that the and i love what you're saying about theological vision it's why we kind of exist to to say ask the you know the the primary need of the church is theological renewal more than like new programs or bigger screens or you know yep. that you have but you must have come against though the tendency i'm thinking of church work now for success to be seen as kind of empire building mm-hmm. what have you how have you interacted with that we were never large enough to feel yeah. like an empire. <laughs> we always felt like a family trying to work out how to. Um, uh, now we, one of again, we were good at starting new things, and we were good at giving them away in one sense. But still, the the management of things was maybe not the greatest um, from the church. That was not my gift, and it wasn't particularly other people's gifts. Right. So I mean, there was some weaknesses there. Um, say, ask the question the again. The empire building. Like yeah, you have, yeah. That's always it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the more you can give things away, mm. the the better. And, and the more you can continue to share power with others, yeah. the better, mm. the healthier the institution is. And also, like... Charles is really good at this. Charles Ringo, one of my mentors, to say, like, you need to invite critique. You don't wait for critique. You invite critique from within and from without, and that helps you to realize your weaknesses and where you're strong. And I think we went through visioning pro- three visioning processes yeah. while I was there at the church, and that were really important, and people said some hard things. And, uh, and, and that helps to prevent you from blindness of, yeah. of what's going on. It's the same with the role of the church in culture. I mean, part of the role of the church in culture is to say, you know, if, if society keeps on this track, we're, we're going to be living in hell. <laughs> you know, there is this role of this prophetic role of culture that needs to come out of a place of love. But it needs, it, we do have that role to say, hey, if we we let these institutions go down these wrong paths or if we don't deal with these issues we are going to be living in a kind of hell and so Mm -hmm. i think there's there's that's such a yeah that's such a more interesting view of that than because i think when you talk about you know theological concepts like eternal damnation and the, the, the kind of religious aspects you can get a lot of people kind of parting company with that. But when you're using the word in this way, I think there's an identification of that with people where they're like, whether it's climate change, whether it's income inequality, right? Mm -hmm. Just around here, things like cost of living. How are we going to do this? It seems like everything's falling apart. Right. And to some degree you're saying, well, it is falling apart without this hopeful vision. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that we need, we that unless we're being reformed as people and institutions, um, in order that 
love and goodness do become more prevalent in these places and in us, then we are going to, to you know, fall. Our son is doing his PhD in climate science, and mm. so we've learned a lot about um, the dangers we're in. And also just recognizing that we need a spiritual vision yes. if we're yeah. going to address climate change because it, it really has to come from a desire to live differently. And that is a, comes from a spiritual vision. And even groups that don't identify in any way as, quote, religious, I think recognize that there's, you know, it's, it's, we've got to value the world in a different way from a different place than just the modernist kind of, this is our way to make money, you know. Um, and so yeah. there's a spiritual vision underlying I, I the need this, to address this. I have this picture in my mind as you're saying that, and I, I hope it's not too prescriptive, but um, where compelled by faith you have this vision and you're engaged in something in the community working on a common cause whether it's climate change or you know housing or whatever and where your faith is uh, informed shaped invigorated like enlivened by partnering with someone who doesn't share your faith right you must have experienced that incredible totally thing. totally i mean again and again because we're all formed with these desires okay. towards the good <laughs> Um, however misshaped that might be, you know, often found that people outside the church were more committed to some of these things mm. than people inside the church. And so, yeah, there was a sense of we work together on these things That's because beautiful. we're our human longing is in this direction. And so, um, yeah, we we partnered with whoever we could on whatever issue we could, yeah. um, recognizing that we're not the only ones that care about this place, you know. That, that's a very different kind of way of behaving as an institution than I think we witnessed in Christendom. Hmm. Um, I mean, I would largely think I'm, uh, I would confess that I'm rather critical of the church. I think that anyone who's listened to this already podcast did. has probably already come to that conclusion. Um, but I think the ways that you're speaking about as a community, when you're, you're inviting critique, when you're looking to have, ways in which you're informed by what other people's needs are rather than just what you're wanting to do. That's not how I experienced the institutional church behaving. Largely, there was not an invitation for criticism. Most things that would make the institution look bad were hidden, covered up. I mean, we've, we've seen all of the things that have been shoved under the carpet for the last many decades coming out now. Um, and so I go... There, I don't. I'm not sure that any of the ways that you're talking about the church behaving were possible within that structure. Like when the church had that much influence in society, that much alignment with power and politics, that they can behave in these healthy ways. So, and yet I hear people lamenting that they don't feel that the church is relevant anymore. Like that they're it's, kind of wishing for that time. Yeah, and. and <laughs> I mean, I'm not personally one of those people, um, but again, I don't have a vested interest in the institutional church staying, and I think that there were really valid critiques of how the church has in general operated with larger society. Um, let, me, let me offer a little pushback mm, around please. that, Alison. Um, I, I am not in, interested in maintaining the institution of the church mm -hmm. as it exists but I am not naive enough to think that there will not be institutional elements to whatever forms in the future. And so, 
it's how do we hold the reality that humans will form institutions um, with the reality that we need to keep pressing in to make them to make sure that they're maintaining health yeah and, and that they're willing to have critique and yes that will, yeah. yes mm-hmm. yeah. and so I think that's what I would say so but the, I agree with the longing for you know when we had more power in society but I you, think that's you don't the issue yeah. have that longing well I I I mean I do lament the the people just find it so easy to ignore God in the world. Um, I, I do lament mm. that because I think that we, we are fooling ourselves <laughs> to think that we, we can make it happen. Mm. Like, I just think that that is such a naive thing because I know my own brokenness. I know the brokenness yeah. of our neighborhood. I know the way the sin impacts all of us. Um, so to think that we can make it happen is is naive at the same time i have great hope in the work of the spirit in all sorts of ways in the world to renew humans so that we can find power to address these issues are are you seeing that maybe some of that um that hesitancy to to engage with with god or with the institutional church that, that you're talking about do you see some of that as almost like a a pendulum swing a little for society that as there hasn't been as much of a social consequence for no longer being associated with a church, like you can still have a job, you can still, you know, run your business, you can do those sorts of things if you're not a Christian, which you couldn't a century ago. Um, are you seeing that that some of that is maybe like a pendulum swing for people to go, I can't interact with the church as I've known it, and I don't believe that the church should be able to have this control and this mechanism over me and those sorts of things. And, and so because they don't understand a way in which that could be done in a healthy way, they've just gone just yep. rejecting That's it all. That's the key right there mm-hmm. is because like, like part I, of our, our I rejection. I feel like it's kind of the church's fault in some way. Um, it is. It is. But part of our rejection of the church is our rejection of authority altogether. Mm. Right. And, you know, people like Robert Putnam and Bowling Alone have shown that, you know, people aren't gathering in groups. And part of their resistance to gathering in groups is because they don't want somebody else telling them what to do. Like, so whenever you gather in a group and have some sort of function together, there's going to be some sort of authority structure. Doesn't have to be, you know, hierarchical, but Mm -hmm. there has to be some known, you know, or some understood authoritarian structure that, that, that is going to press in on us at times. And so that's the other side of it is that we can reject, if we reject authority, I don't see a lot of people leaving the church who are forming the kinds of communities that I would want. And so, you know, that to me is, is, you know, that's a a step. We we need to step out Mm -hmm. of the unhealthy institution. But how are we going to form communities? No, I think those are really, really good questions. Yeah. like for myself, whenever I, I hear of, of someone I know that, that has decided to walk away from the church, I, I lament it for, for certain reasons, um, but I also go, yeah, that feels logical. Hmm. Um, when, when they've been inside of, of churches that have been unwilling to be held accountable for poor behavior, uh, that are unwilling, that, that have justified just chewing people up. Mm-hmm. Uh, as like the means of doing that to justify the end of some sort of we're going to stay relevant. And so I, I, I 
lament people leaving the church, but I, I feel like I understand why they've left the church as they've experienced it. Yeah, for people who've experienced the church that way, there there's a need for healing, right? Mm-hmm. And and oftentimes that involves a, a step of stepping away, right? Yeah. That's part of that for that journey. My my thing is that I would have people frustrated with our church and, and say, you know, they're finished with the church. They want to be a Christian, but they're finished with the church. And I'd say, no problem. As long as you can gather people together in a way that is trans- everybody is being transformed and formed into the image of God, and you're loving your neighbors and living a porous life in your neighborhood and beginning to address systemic issues, you don't need to be part of the church. Yeah. Well, then, yeah. <laughs> And then you are. <laughs> and then you are the church. But that's not so easy. And that's no. what I'm trying to get at my no, book. No, it's really the, difficult the way it, you talk about it. That it's difficult to be the church. And let, let's be honest about that. It's, it, it, it's difficult for people to be human well. Yeah. <laughs> go, go back to that lament before we end with the last question that we always end with. But um, the lament about people not you know, either thinking about or having a concept of God or interaction with God. Yeah. I don't see in, in how you say that kind of that lament as accusation, right? No. I see it actually as kind of a sorrow that yes. there is a there is a sense of which then putting it together with what Allison's saying is there's a, there are trust issues there yep. for people yep. that I mean I I'm concur with Allison. I know many people who have who have walked away from the church experience and and, and they're better for it. Yep, they're healthier. <laughs> they are. They they don't. It's not like they've lost interest in spirituality. They've not. Um, so, and I think sometimes we're, we're reticent to kind of see that, but, but that what you're saying with that lament as sorrow is what can we do about these trust things? Where do we connect with this longing? Mm -hmm. Where do we, so on that, I have this kind of question looking at your work too. What does it mean to you? And we, a lot of our work is informed by Karl Barth's theology and some of his stuff on vocation and the rest. And what does it mean to you that every person is called now saying, Christian, non-Christian, like that everyone's called. Right, right. Well, just to go back a little bit to your earlier comment there, <laughs> Richard Topping has a good line where he says that bad theology is bad for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, maybe that's not quite what Richard says. I've but heard it, him say it. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but, but there is a sense that like the vision of God emerging from the from the scriptures if we can read them well and and navigate some of the you know issues in scripture and have a good hermeneutic the vision of god that emerges is this god committed to the well-being and flourishing of the world the well-being and flourishing of every human being and so like that and that god is committed to that end and the extent of that commitment is seen in Christ and by the work of the Spirit and the call of people to give their lives away for the good of others. In, in. So there's this good theology is important for mm-hmm. people to experience the goodness of God. Like God is so good. And, and we, I long for people to experience the incredible goodness yeah. of this God who's so committed to them and so... Um, has so much wants them to participate in the life of God in the world. That is is amazing news, and and that every human being yeah, is that. is called to participate in the love of God by 
by growing in their own humanity, by being assured of, of forgiveness and love, by being able to give themselves away and pay attention to the least among them. Like, this is the call of human beings. And we've, we've narrowed call to what job should I take when in, indeed the vocation <laughs> right. of the yeah. human being is to live into this vision of reflecting the incredible beauty and goodness of God in the world. Which is then where you are at your most human. Yeah. Right, right. So I, when you say we've narrowed call, I think of the two, think of two ways in which we've done that. One in, in you'd say secular or whatever concepts, uh, narrow call to be like, what job am I going to get to career, make the most money, have the, yep. you know, have the most security or whatever, yeah. or call in the religious sense. My call is to do this religious work and you're right. speaking about something that is so much more mm-hmm. hopeful, right? How's no, and I mean, I see, I see so much potential for what the church could be. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that some of the the walking away that that we've seen um I don't know maybe that was necessary to actually get the institution's attention to go we can't just by default claim significance and you know have have control but I see a potential for there to be a bit of like a mediated relationship where hmm. the institution can actually have examination and renewal in ways so that it can be the healthy thing that it needs to be. And that people who have left the institution can say, I, I'm willing to have some conversations to see how this could be what it is supposed to be. I see, but I, I, I'm not. So in, in one sense, I feel a lament that people had to walk away. Um, although I, I, I do wonder whether that's what was necessary to actually shake the church out of the assumption um, that they were still in Christendom, that they still got to have like the relational like power. And I think what you're talking about is having these healthy institutions in which there, there are systems of, of how we, we choose to relate with one another and, and like those authority kind of like how, how do we function as a community and, but it's done in a way that is not in like a domination and a control and, um, and it is done in a healthy way. And I feel like there is opportunity for the church going forward that it could do that. There's an incredible opportunity. I mean, to take the analysis of a philosopher like Jürgen Habermas, and who in the social structure of transformation talks about how we live in a world where there's individuals, families down here, and there's corporations and government up here. And the mediating inst- the role of mediating institutions like the church and other organizations has, has largely become vacuous. And especially when the church declined, you know, just said, well, all we do is spiritual work rather than the church bearing yeah. witness to the vision of humanity. And so there's an incredible opportunity for groups of people who are living out this way of life together to collaborate with others in this space to say, no, we'll push back against the, the, the kind of life that and the powers that misshape the world coming out of consumerism and, mm-hmm. and corporate globalization. And at the same time, there's a way of saying, hey, you know, being just being living for yourself down here and, you know, your own personal aggrandizement and mm-hmm. wealth accumulation is not a vision for being yeah. human. And so the, the role of, of mediating institutions is we have an incredible opportunity. We do. 
if we can form those kind of communities. But we need to be able to form those kind of communities. So then we'll end with our the question we always end with because it you kind of you've already moving started us, down moving that us down the yeah. runway. Um, so you can answer however you like. Obviously, uh, what gives you hope right now? Yeah. Well, I I see an openness to experimentation in a lot of places, mm-hmm. and I think. Um, you know, former Archbishop Rowan Williams has influenced me a lot. He says, you know, we need a mixed economy of the church right now. We need a lot of different ways of trying to live out the vision of the gospel and a lot of experiments. And, and you know, not all experiments, you know, have a good out, uh, an out, a positive outcome. Like they're part of us learning, oh, that doesn't... Mm-hmm. That yeah. doesn't. Or they last for a bit and that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that's okay. So let's be, let's have room to experiment and let's have the, give the freedom. And this is where I, I really um, find hope in people who are pressing in, not naively, mm-hmm. uh, because I think that's a danger uh, about the ways that these powers Im- misshape us, but they're pressing in to want to form different kinds of communities. So I held an... Um, uh, gathering in 2015 around new monastic groups around yep. the world at Bowen Island for mm. my 25th anniversary at Grandview. And one of the groups was there was the Bruderhof. And the Bruderhof are really interesting because they've been at it for 100 years, so they're not naive about community <laughs> and all that goes into the, the struggles you have. At the same time, they've really persisted in this vision of we want to form a, a way of life. And they... that. You know, and they struggle with isolation sometimes, and they've struggled with, you know, you know, elements of their way of their practices that become, you know, you know, kind of reified, and they don't yeah. really make sense. Like, you know, you dress a certain simply, and then it became you. Know, we dress this way versus other ways, yeah. and you know, you know, all those things that you can get stuck in. But there are really healthy Bruderhof communities around the world, and I, I'm curious about these longer term. Groups with a longer-term vision and practice that that mm. try to live a different way of being human. I think if I, I went to the on retreat a few years ago at the Jesuit Center in Guelph, they have a 500-year plan for their <laughs> land, and 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 I I looked at that and I thought. Man, you know, most churches have a two-year plan. If anything, yeah. you know, like if they've another, actually another considered revisioning, that, another and it's all strategic. Stra- plan. It's yeah. all strate- yeah. strategy, right? Rather than like, what is our vision for the world, hmm. and how might we orient ourselves towards that long-term transformation that God is bringing about yeah. in creation? Uh, I, I love That's what you great. say there—the yeah. the mixed economy and the experimentation. It also kind of takes the pressure off. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and you're guided by vocational call rather than like I've got to make sure this thing works at all costs. Yeah. Right. And find some kind of identity. Yeah. In it Having said that, you know, I I really, you know, I I don't feel the like. I think a lot of churches hold a lot of goodness, even yeah. when they're screwed up. And even bad churches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and and so I I do lament. Like it's hard to see denominations starting to yeah. crumble mm-hmm. and so forth. And so, not to prop up bad theology and bad practice, but I lament that just the yeah. the secular breath. We all breathe in is is leading people to care less about forming these kind of communities. Yeah, that's what I, 
Well said. Well, thank you so much. It's fantastic to speak with you. Uh, we want to bless you in your work. And I mean, we know some of the people you work with and some of the well, ones right here. <laughs> and, good uh, people. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> Very so good So thanks people. so much for joining us. Fantastic conversation. Thanks, everybody. Rector's Cupboard is a production of Reflector Project and is hosted and produced by Todd Weeb, Allison Williams, and Amanda Mina. Our cupboard master is Ken Bell. Rector's Cupboard is made possible by the generous support of donors. Check out rectorscupboard.ca for past episodes, events, and how you can help fund the podcast. You can also support Rector's Cupboard by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, which helps other people find us. Thanks for listening. Thank you.